Welcome to Creative Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. On this episode, my guest is Ryan K. Lindsay. He's the author of Beautiful Canvas. That is a new comic book being published by Black Mask Studios and is coming out on June 28th. So you're getting plenty of advance notice about this book that's coming out. It is going to be a four-issue series. Four issues. So jump on this one if you want to get a copy. Black Mask is one of the smaller indie publishers, so you're not going to see tons of those books in your store as you would, say, a Marvel or DC comic. We're talking lower print runs, so if you like what you hear, order now. Now, Ryan hails from Australia, and I'm calling from the United States, so there's a bit of a time difference, so I was calling him during the night when he was at home during the day. So it was fun. It was interesting. And I had a really good conversation with Ryan. You know, we do talk about his new book, Beautiful Canvas. We talk about his creative team, who are simply amazing. He's been working with Sam Cavella for a while. He's the artist on the book, and he is doing some of his best work. Triona Farrell's doing the colors. She does a wonderful job complimenting the line work. And Ryan Ferrier doing the lettering. And his longtime editor, Dan Hill, is also in the book. So this team has come together to produce this wonderful noir-based comic book. But that description does not do it justice because it is not a pure noir book. I read the first issue. It gets weird. But I think you're going to really like what you see. And as I said, that art, it's really good. So onward. Let's start our discussion with Ryan K. Lindsay here now on Creator Talks. Ryan, welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you for having me, man. This is really surreal because depending on one's point of view, I'm either calling you in the future or you're speaking to me in the past. Well, I mean, it all depends on if we're on a flat earth or not. I mean, there's so many variables. True. Very true. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, like an elementary school teacher by day. I teach year four. So I teach like 10-year-olds. And we were discussing how people in the past used to think that the earth was flat. And all my kids are like, ah, what a bunch of fools. And I was like, oh, well, you know, they, they didn't know. Like, you know, how, how would you figure this out unless, you know, there was a lot of math involved? And I was like, and don't joke because there are people now that think the earth is flat and they lost their minds. And I was, um, I was pointing out that like the premiere YouTube clip that I was directed to to prove that the earth is flat was a guy sitting there showing a toy plane going around the world. And he was like, and then it's upside down. And the kids in my class were like, well, we are upside down, but gravity holds you down. And I'm like, and you're 10 and you get it. I was like, well, <laughs> this is where we're at right now. I'm sure a bunch of flat earthers are just like, oh, I'm not buying beautiful canvas now. Bam. Yeah. You lost a couple there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's at least you know, 1.4 cumulative brains. I've just uh, surfed off the book. That's a shame. <laughs> you're in East Australia. You're in the capital. Yes. People think the capital is Sydney. Yeah, which is, you know, probably should have been. Yeah, it's look, it's just a gigantic suburb to be honest. It's um, it was a it was a city democratically chosen uh, about a hundred years ago because Sydney wanted it and Melbourne wanted it and neither could agree that the other would have it. So uh, they decided to meet somewhere in the middle and I think they floated at like a dozen different cities to vote on, and each city had different variables. Some were connected to good solid um, in, uh, interior train lines, some were port towns, all of this, and Canberra got through on something like eleven percent of the vote. So it's uh, no one's ever been really passionate about the capital, sadly. 
just this weird sort of spot. It's cold. It's colder than everything else around it. It's got this weird, I mean, I'm assuming it's because of the soulless politicians that live here, but it's got this weird hollow atmosphere. <laughs> it doesn't hold heat. Uh, just lets cold mill about. We have winter for like nine months of the year. Oh, really? It's, um, yeah, it's a really weird, like we get, we get summer and then everything else is just cold. And it's sort of, um, when the sun is shining, it's really warm. And then when a cloud, like just a small cloud passes in front, the temperature, you can feel it drop just instantly. There's no humidity here. There's no atmosphere. Um, yeah, it's a really, it's a, it's a really strange ghost town full of public servants and, um, and, and families. It's actually quite a decent, but beside all that, it's a decent place to sort of raise families. Yeah. I'm up in uh, Delaware, which is Eastern seaboard of the U S like South of Philadelphia. I used to live in, uh, Newcastle, which at one time was the capital of Delaware, but because oh. it was along the river, it was at risk of being attacked by the British during the colonial wars. So they moved it down to Dover. Ah. Well, that's the thing. See, like Sydney is a lovely city. It's got everything, but I, I don't like it. It's too busy. The, the roads are too narrow because the drivers are rubbish. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, I would, I'd love to visit. For, I love to visit for a weekend and then I get out. Um, so where I want to live is, is somewhere a little more chill and i mean there's there's been that discussion now i mean north korea just turned its eyes on australia and said shut up or we'll nuke you too so a lot of people have sort of been saying does that mean they're going to hit canberra because it's the capital i i don't know there's nothing here though it's such a small target you could too easily miss <laughs> um so yeah we're sort of having that sort of nah they'll go they probably don't even know canberra exists they'll go for sydney or something like that so um it's always fun to, to, to joke about whether you're going to die in a horrific oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> blast them. You're laughing or you're crying. It's ridiculous. That's it. And the the Aussie way is just, ah, just laugh about it. She'll be right. Just, <laughs> just steamroll over it. Don't worry about it. That's how I got asked a lot. I went to Emerald City uh, Comic Con in Seattle the other month. And I got asked a lot, like, what's the political landscape like? And I was like, oh, like, I don't know, 70% apathy. People just, yeah, it'll be fine. Oh, let it happen sort of thing. Like, it works a lot of the times because a lot of people are like, oh, why would you be racist? Ugh, what a waste of time. Just whoever. You want to hang out with whoever, do it. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly how you should view things. Just chill out and be. But then when it comes to taking action, we're a little bit uh, lazy as well. So you know, the blade cuts both ways, I guess. Yeah. Well, everyone needs just, just to calm down. Everybody just calm down. Put your weapons down. Relax. Put your phones down. Stop <laughs> tweeting. Yeah. Right. Fine. Yeah, we need, we need, we need some chill. Uh, inserted and that's and, and that's where i'm like australia should be sweet and then our idiot leader was mouthing off i'm like oh, nobody likes you man like now we hate you so yeah malcolm turnbull has a lot to answer for oh, well you don't have a monopoly on that our, our leader's doing just fine on his own <laughs> <laughs> but on to less uh less dark things uh, let's go to something a little more fun and also a little dark is your next big thing coming up beautiful canvas this is what you've been aiming for. This is what you've been working toward. Oh man, yeah. This book, um, this book is is it's like exactly the sort of thing I I want to be making right now. It's just a, it's a little perfect storm of the right story, the perfect team with uh, Sammy Cavella on art, Triona Farrell on colors, um, Ryan Ferrier on letters, and even my editor um, Dan Hill, um, all just working in in unison and um was a fantastic publisher at black mask i mean yeah i really i couldn't ask for a more perfect project coming out right now to be honest and you've worked with sammy before i mean you this is like what the fourth time you've worked with uh, him this is technically the fourth thing we've done together yeah and so we had um i guess the first thing we did was dear editor 
that would have been the third thing we put together, but it was the first thing we put out. Um, so yeah, Dear Editor was a, you know, a book about an editor of a crime beat at the newspaper who's also a dear and, um, you know, sort of nobody cares, which is kind of nice. And we told, uh, you know, really straight crime stories around him and we ran three different Kickstarters, uh, one for each issue to sort of, uh, roll the mini series out and each, each, um, each Kickstarter was more successful than the last, which was really awesome because when you think about comics, it's always launch big and then just have that war of attrition slowly wear your numbers down um, numbers never grow and yet each kickstarter we did we had more backers and more more money coming through and um yeah we loved making a dear editor and i love doing that with sammy and then uh we went across to comics tribe and we did chum which is a surf noir crime tale about summer stanwick a waitress on an island who comes across a bag full of drugs and money and thinks she can use that to sort of get out of a crummy life and um we, we, we've put together another uh, a book called Curriculum, which just is yet to launch. Um, we're still sort of working on a lot of back end of that. Um, and so it was actually, we'd finished Chum, and then he was working on the third issue of Dear Editor. And I just knew I wanted to keep working with him. I love Sammy. Um, I love I love the, the way he tells story on the page. I love his ink lines. Everything about his work is, is perfect. And I felt we gelled. So I hit him up and was just like, you know, I know we've been working a lot, um, but after this, you know, we're, we're both sort of free and clear. Do you want to do something? And he was like, oh, absolutely, man. I love your scripts. Um, let, let me know if anything comes up. And so I think the next day I sent him a, a, an idea the, that I'd been kicking around, which was beautiful canvas. And um, thankfully he jumped at it, which was lovely. Yeah, just like flipping through the Diamond Previews catalog as I was looking through it. And I was looking for something new and I saw the art and I was like, whoa, I <laughs> It just kind of, I know, right? it just grabbed me. The covers are gorgeous too. I mean, even like the whole black mass catalog, all their covers like really pop out at you. But this one in particular grabbed my attention because um, of the art. And of course it's a noir type story and I'm no expert on noir, but I like it when I see it. And I was like, well, this looks like a good one to, to pick up. Yeah. 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 No, thank you. That's, um, I did, I went to the black mask booth at Seattle and you just see all their books laid out and they just all look dynamite. Like they're, they're a publisher that chooses well, that uh, brands well, that, that does a lot of things right. And um, so, yeah, Sammy and I sort of knew, you know, this is this has got to be a level up in, in all of our possible strengths. And it is those those initial pages. I mean, you can imagine you can imagine me getting the, the ink lines back for that opening sort of splash image of um, our lead character, Lon Isley, sitting sitting on a couch at a scene where, you know, she's a hit woman and there's a few dead bodies around her and she's just sitting and, and staring back at you. And the line work was so gorgeous. But then uh, when we got the colours through from Driona and there's the, the, the purple and pink hues all over the page and there's that hyper uh, pink-red blood um, on, on Lon's leg and on the wall and on the dead guy's face, I just instantly knew, like, we were onto something. Like it's, it's beautiful when, like, I mean, I didn't script any of those colors. I'm not smart enough to think of any of those things. And so to see uh, Triona bring those to the table, I was just like, oh, we, we've got something magic here. And that first page has really resonated with people, which is, which is completely lovely. Yeah, it really grabbed me. I mean, the, the line work is gorgeous. I, well, first I read the Ashcan preview. And I was like, ah, oh, I really like this. And then I read the rest and I was like, wow, this is really getting pretty wild. I mean, it gets it gets wilder as you go along. And no lie, and I read it today, I went to my LCS 
who is a big supporter of Black Mask Studio. They have a, always promote their books in their store. And I went in and I said, put this on my list. <laughs> like I ordered it oh, to, nice. today. I was like, this is on. <laughs> Perfect. That's uh, that's exactly what we want, you know, the the pages and the previews and everything to sort of lead towards people getting that. Oh, yeah. oh this, is, this is something different. This is hopefully something good. So oh, that's brilliant, man. That's made my day. And this is a four-issue series. I would say mini-series, but you're not really putting like a, a, a size around it like it's just a mini. No, it's a four-issue story that's, that you're putting together. You don't, right. you don't have like a long-range plan of this is going to be a trade, this is going to be a movie. No, it's just, hey, four issues, this is the story. Yeah, yeah. We really we really want people to get in on the issues. Um, and we're especially where um, we're backloading all the issues with a lot of back matter. So we've got um, essays and art and some funky stuff in there because, I don't know, I, I, I love single issues. I know that they're a pain in the ass to store, and I know that trades look great on the shelf. Um, and if people want to trade weight, well, that, that that's fine, and that's their choice. But we want them to feel like, oh, no, these these issues will be special things that have something in them. Um, and I'm very open about it, very much in the way that Phillips and Brubaker do in their books, um, very much in the way that Fraction does across his line of books. We want the issues to be something that uh, unique and special. And um, Black Mask was really supportive of that. They just said, look, here's, here's your page count. You know, you can kind of fill it with lots of different things. Let us know what you want to do. Um, and it was kind of cool to have that freedom. And to then, you know, I, then I would hit up Sammy and go, can we do some of these things? And it's putting some extra workload on him at times, but he was totally down for it. Like he's, he's an amazing partner. Every time I've worked with him and the amount of extra stuff he does, he doesn't just draw pages um, put him in the Dropbox and then bounce. Like he is, he is a guy committed to the project, not just the story, which is really phenomenal, I must say. Well, you must think very highly of him because you know, being the humble guy that you are, you put him first in the credits. Yeah, yeah. Look, I um, I've never seen that I, done before. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't happen enough for my money, as far as I'm concerned. But you know, there's been a there's been a rising push of this idea that. And it's true, writers writers have all the clout in the industry at the moment. You look at the uh, the big summits that occur at the the big two publishers. It's generally the writers who go along. Um, I know that's starting to somewhat shift, but certainly not enough. Writers always get first credit. Um, books are often named by the writer. People would say, "Oh, I read Brubaker's, you know, Criminal." That's leaving a lot of Sean Phillips off there. Um, and I just think it doesn't take a lot of effort just to switch the names around it's it's like it's literally the least i could do and yet say something it says something to sammy it says how much i you know respect and love his work and appreciate him sticking with me um it it lets the audience know this is a collaboration sammy is a storyteller on this he was not just a guy turning my script pages into images like we're uh, we're very much a hive mind on these things and so i wish more books did it um, you know, I hear, you hear a lot of people sort of saying, you know, you've got to give the artist credit, you know, uh, Declan Shalvey's a great one on Twitter with his, his hashtag, the art cred. Um, you know, news sources are often citing the writer and, and, and leaving the artist name off. Um, the writers had their name first for, I don't know, half a century. I don't think it hurts to, to flip it up, but yeah, you won't see it, um, sadly often at all. I know at Black Mask, um, space writers. Uh, uh, by um, uh, Fabian Rangel Jr. and Alexis uh, Zirit, they've they've swapped it so the artist is first, which I I love. And um, on Saga, uh, Brian K. Vaughan and Fiona Staples swapped position with issue twenty five, I think it was, and she's first. And it's it's like it's just such a small thing, but it just sort of it just makes sure that people 
no, you know, the artist is so important to comics. It's words and images. And yet uh, so many writers are sort of happy to be like, you know, this is my book. And I'm like, well, it's not just yours. And I've seen some writers just put their name on, on the title and have the artist listed inside. And that's, that's, that's doggery. Yeah, I don't, I don't respect that at all. It seems so obvious. You know, it's a comic book. It takes a writer and an artist, artist to you know, convert those words, that script, into an image and, and lay everything on. It seems pain, you know, very obvious, painfully obvious. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, now, way back, there were no credits on comics at all. Usually, uh, yeah. there might be a signature down at the bottom, but that was it. And then, as the '60s came along, '50s and '60s, mainly the '60s, you start to see the credits. Um, and it was pretty much, and you never thought of it just being a writer's book. It was there's the creative team. You didn't really know who they were because you didn't have things like this podcast. You didn't have things like social media, the internet. And there were some fanzies, but for the average buyer like myself back in the '70s yeah. and '80s, I didn't buy the fanzies, so I just knew the names on the page. And then came that in the 90s, or actually I want to start with the early, the late 80s, there was mm. a big push on, it wasn't so much who was on the book, it was who was in the book. You know, it's Wolverine, he's here. Uh, it's Ghost Rider, he's here. And that really helped sell the book. Then it became, well, hey, look at these artists. And then there was the image movement. And then there was a shift back to the writer again. But to me, you can't, it's like the yin and the yang. You know, it's, you can't have one without the other. I, I read the books for the stories, but if you get the right artist with the book, man, it's just like chocolate and peanut butter you know it's like a Reese's it's perfect and that's yeah it's, it's I don't see a lot of those but when I do man I jump on them. yeah that's right it's it's it just speaks to the magic of comics that is that the amalgamation of all the things on the page and it's and I mean it's why we put the the, the color and the the letter on there as well they're they're forming the page they're doing so much work it doesn't take much to give them the props that they so hugely deserve I don't know it's like for me it seems like a no-brainer um, at this stage, but still, so many books come out, and they just they won't they won't do it. And 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 partly to my mind, it just I'm just annoyed that for decades it was all Stanley presents, Stanley created. I'm like, dude, <laughs> barely, man, barely. And just because you're you know the last hand on something or you're the loudest doesn't mean that you should get to play that game. So um. I figure, yeah, it's the least I can do to sort of give. And I mean, look at what Sammy does in this book and, and has done in all our projects. The guy is phenomenal. I mean, I'd, I'd put his name bigger if I could. Like, he's just, the dude is so insanely talented and so lovely. Um, he really just is the the perfect collaborator for this sort of medium because he, he brings so much to the page and so much thought and so much expertise that... um. Yeah, creating this book is, um, with him has been a real dream process, I must say. It's kind of nice how nice it has been. You mentioned the back matter, that, and I love back matter in books. And that's, to me, one of the biggest selling points of buying the single copies because a lot of times you don't see that in the trades. Um, and it really adds value because books are expensive now. I mean, you know, I mean, everyone has to get paid, but it's still it's a lot when you buy a lot. Like me, you buy a lot of books, it adds up. Yeah. And you get, remi- <laughs> you get reminded how much it's adding up. Hey, that's a nice vacation after a while. Yes, it is. But it really adds a lot because like you mentioned, uh, Brubaker and Phillips, I I do read Kill or Be Killed. Um, I'm catching up on the criminal stories. I loved uh, the Hollywood uh, story they had, uh, The Fade, Fade Out. out. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. back matter, it's, it's stuff I don't know about in great detail and sometimes not at all. And I love reading those essays and the extra art they put in there. It's just 
or those um, creators that put in the, the process of how they laid out the book. Here's the script. Here's the layout. Here's the ink. It's just, it adds so much more to it. That is the thing that will make me go from, oh, I can wait for a trade to being like, oh, you need the issues. Absolutely going to get it because I want, I want that author's voice. Like as a kid, I, uh, I had a much older brother. Uh, and he read a lot of Stephen King, right? And so we had like a bookshelf just full of Stephen King books. And I can remember being very young and grabbing those books and reading the um, forwards and the author's notes by Stephen King. And I just fell in love with his voice. Like the way Stephen King writes just about his books is fascinating. And I I would have read the forward um, to the uh, the um, unabridged version of The Stand. I would have read that two dozen times over before I ever actually read the book. I used to just get the book off and read those things. I love it. There's just, there's, I knew from a very young age, I wanted to be a writer. And so getting that peek behind the curtain was beyond fascinating every single time. And so now getting getting to do that, like I love it when there's a trade with a with a forward by another creator and you sort of get that just that little glimpse into the creative process or the creative eye. Um, I think it's so um, insanely cool. And I, it's not I mean, it adds a bit of effort to do, but it's not the most difficult thing to do. And I think it can mean a lot to readers especially the readers that it will mean a lot to. And so, you know, by that, I mean, if somebody doesn't care, well, then they're zero. They, they don't care. They're zero percent. But if someone cares, they're probably 100 percent. There's not a lot of people that are like, oh, yeah, I guess, well, maybe I'll read it. There's people that won't. And then there's people that are like, man, I'm getting to the shop to get this because I want it because I want to read that as well. Um, and so having come from that mind and that background, it's, it's a no brainer to add, you know, a bit of extra stuff as much as we can, really. We, we just looked at how many pages Black Mask would give us. And I was like, all right, Sammy, how much can we realistically lay out or write or draw? And we really came with a battle plan to just drop stuff in there. So, and Sammy was down, which was really cool. How many pages is each issue? Um, each issue, there's the 22 pages of story. Mm -hmm. And then we've got, uh, I think it's five We're we're working on five pages of back matter per um, issue um, some art some essay stuff and uh, some other sort of designy stuff then we have the i think it's the inside back cover is the next issue's cover and then the back cover um sammy designs a, a little thing as well so that it's it's a it's a nice sort of complete package i don't know I don't, I don't like getting to the end of a comic and on the back there's like a big ad for something else yeah i like that whole cover so even if it like even saga they just do basically the 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 spot color just wraps around the back. Even that, I, it looks and feels better than, than like a big dirty ad yeah. on the back of it. So, um, yeah, so we've tried to really load it up, which, you know, then sucks for all the other Black Mask books because we're not um, putting enough ads in the back of our issues. <laughs> but, you know, you, you, do, you do what you can, I guess. And, I mean, we're, we're just so passionate and we've come in with such lead time. Um, we really banked a lot of the book before we solicited. I mean, um, Sammy just sent me the pencils for issue four um and issue three is in the process of being colored and issues one and two are done so you know we, we're going to hit that monthly deadline and so i like i've scripted it all i'm just sort of my only job for beautiful canvas now is to sort of beat the drum and uh to check my email and and enjoy the last few stages of art um so i was sort of sitting around going well look sammy i got i got time do you mind if i write this do you mind if i have this in the back and um uh, we've come up with uh, my editor, Dan Hill. Him and I uh, used to do a, an online column for a, a magazine about comics called um, Stuck in the Gutters, the magazine once by Leo Johnson. And um, 
we wrote a column called Jam Sessions, which was just Dan and I going back and forth talking about um, you know, different comics that we dug. So Dan and I decided we would do one of those in the back of each issue, just talking about, I guess, things tangentially re related to like the theme of Beautiful Canvas and the tone. Um, so we've got these four different topics that we're going to be discussing one in each in each issue. And so we've got, um, yeah, these cool discussions. And I said to Sammy, do you want to do like a like a spot illustration for each one in the exact same way that Phillips does for the, the, the back essays in all the books he does with Brubaker? And Sammy was like, yeah, yeah, for sure, I'll, I'll, I'll squeeze it in. And um, we're, we're not going to announce what the topics are. We want, we want people to sort of find them um, in the stores. But the, the illustration that Sammy did for the first one um, was gorgeous. Like it was, I got, I got it on my phone um, when I was finishing teaching for a day and it was just jaw-dropping. It was so good. Um, the actual art is, is in the mail right now between Finland and here somewhere. Um, I, I said to him, look, I'm buying this off you. This is this is amazing. So um, that was kind of cool. Like, yeah, like Sammy would fit it in. Everything, everything about the book just feels like, you know, passion, which is it's it's the only way I want to make comics. And it's certainly the only way I know how to. I can't imagine. Like, I'd hate to be phoning something in. Because yeah. uh, there's no there's no need for me to be because I, like, as I said, I teach full time. And so comics is really the side hustle. Um, there's, it doesn't help me just to phone in a, you know, a C minus book. Um, I would, I would have no desire to get in the office when the family falls asleep and, and come in here and tack away at pages that are, that I don't have my whole heart behind. I mean, I could be passionate and the book could still suck. Absolutely. Like <laughs> passion doesn't always equate quality, but I think we've got something good. And so I'm really behind it. And there's, there's, there's something really nice about making comics with that charge for every page and every every step of the way and so yeah with this book especially we're really um we're really at a sprint which is kind of cool for the sake of our listeners would you just give us a, a brief overview of what they can expect to see in beautiful canvas oh absolutely yes so beautiful canvas is about lon isley uh, she's a hit woman uh who in the same week that she discovers that uh her girlfriend is pregnant um she's contracted to uh, kill a small child and so we get this uh, quandary, basically, it puts her at an emotional crossroads. And it's very much a sort of hyperbolic a dichotomy of creator-destroyer. So she's creating a life, but she's being asked to sort of very much take a similar one at the same time. And so we really, yeah, we really wanted to sort of unpack that emotional core um, of her character. And then around that, we tell it in a very sort of gonzo world where, you know, there's there's a woman that's hiring her to kill a child so that's strange enough as it is we have like an animal human hybrid hit troop that enters the story later in the issue um there's reactive pyrokinesis uh which i can't talk too much about because it certainly needs to slowly unfold but it's there um and then to be honest things just get weirder because i like that sort of hyperbolic bombacity of genre storytelling where it's not just sort of dealing with a relationship problem it's de it's dealing with this world ending problem that at its core is about relationships i think there's um there's a lot of meat on that bone so yeah we tell it in a really funky sort of style i mean i'm very much influenced by um i love philip k dick's work it's it's been a, a touchstone for me my whole life um more modern works uh within comics especially you look at things from like matt fraction and rick remender i love the way that they go steer wildly into genre and they're not beholden by 
every single reality rule. And so in that way, they can tweak the storytelling and the characters and everything. But the, the emotional core is still very centered about truth. And so, yeah, we have Lon in, in this absolutely problematic situation and she has to sort of work her way through and around and, and under it. And so, yeah, I'm hoping people enjoy the wildness of it, but I'm hoping people sort of resonate with that idea. It's about, you know, it's about parenting and choice and, and decision and relationships and communication. So, yeah, you know, there's an undercurrent that I hope would strike truth with any reader. Yeah, and that really helps the readers to connect in some way emotionally to the story. As wild as it may get, at the core of it is still the relationship, kind of keeping things together. So, uh, yeah, I think people will be very pleased when they read this. Uh, I wanted to ask you, since you did mention it about your teaching, that's your, your day job, that's your bread and butter your teaching. You're teaching um, comics? Is that what you're teaching? Is that the specific subject or are you, are you doing uh, writing? No, no. I teach I teach everything as, as ah. a primary school teacher. I, it's English, maths, art, history, sport. We, we sort of we cover it all. The only thing I don't teach at the moment is um, like Japanese, basically. I can't. At the moment. So we have a, we have, yeah. <laughs> we have a teacher that comes in and does that. And um, yeah, you're sort of, you're expected to be sort of like a jack of all trades, really. Um, so I, I try and um, I try I tie a lot of writing into the classroom. Um, I, I run a lot of extra groups, lunchtime groups focused around writing, whether it's writing um, comics analysis or writing uh, comics as stories or writing short stories or, you know, writing podcasts and then recording them. Um, I do try and bring it in as much because it keeps me passionate at work as well. Um, and teaching is one of those jobs where if you didn't like it, man, you would hate it. Mm. It would just be the worst atmosphere to be in. But if you love it, it really is a gorgeous profession and it'll have its hard days, but it's something that you will believe in. And so, yeah, I, I, I still, I, you know, I've been teaching for 14 years now and I still very much love the day job, which is, um, which is nice and unique. And it's something that I talk to comic creators about a lot because they're, they're making comics as this hope to get out of the day job because they hate the day job. Um, and I feel like I'm in a really nice position where, well, I, I, like realistically, I don't think comics could make me as much money as teaching, but it also wouldn't be as secure. And, you know, I've got a wife and two kids. I, I need security. And so by teaching, I get superannuation at the end of it. I know I can retire comfortably. There's all these elements that I would be very reticent to just kick to the curb and go, well, I just freelance writing now. Let's hope I've set myself up with a good spot. Um, my goal is more, well, how do I find a balance between teaching and writing so that it's a comfortable lifestyle and a comfortable mindset so that I'm not, you know, running myself absolutely ragged. Now you love teaching. So what is it that, that drives you to go in each day? Um, I mean, Obviously, as you said, you can tie in comics to it, which I'm sure makes it a lot more fun. But is there anything else that kind of makes it fun for you? That's something you look forward to each day, even though there are the hard days that, that keeps you going back. Oh, yeah. It's that it's that interaction and, and, and imparting of knowledge, like seeing kids get it is so cool. Like it's so wild to sort of you see that moment where a kid clicks and goes, I think I understand this. And they start to apply it. And you know that. School's a safe place for them, and so you want to make it fun. Um, I'm I'm like 70 percent a goofball in the classroom. I'll, I'll I'll clown about, but the kids always know where the line is, and so it's this really wonderful atmosphere. I I had a big discussion with my teaching team recently because um, last year I was I was nominated for a teacher of the year award in in uh, the Australian Capital Territory, and the people that I work with in my team, like I would almost hands down say every single one of them is a better teacher than me. 
and they know their theory and they 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 apply and they do all of these things and i was just like i i, I don't even know why i'm nominated or how this comes through but the i think the reason that somebody did take the time to nominate me was more just around the fact that I, the thing that I do well, which is create an environment in the classroom that's really cohesive and really fun and really connected and really engaging is like a really, it's, it's more loud and sort of out there and, it, and it's maybe more gaining attention. And I know that people I work with are just doing such an amazing job, but they, they should push it out there a, a little bit more because they are better than me. I could, I could absolutely stand by that statement. And I don't know the theories as well as them. And I don't always know the research behind things. And, and I do my best to try and keep up. But what I do is get in the classroom and connect. And so for me, it becomes a really fun job because you just you're in the room having having fun, yet setting up knowledge. And I don't know, maybe maybe that relates to how I make comics, because all of my comics try to impart some sort of theme, some sort of mini lesson. But I never want to do it in a boring way. Um, I would hate for a comic of mine to suddenly just stop and become a science lesson of, you know, how these animal hybrid hit troops came about. I would find that really um, boring, really didactic. And so in that way, when I write comics, I try to make it way more fun and interesting and, ga and engaging and, and, and assume the, um, the intellect behind the reader to, to join the dots. And I sort of love doing that in the classroom as well. You, get, you set up situations where the kids have to make these connections and the moment they can do that, they're really piecing together knowledge, which is, you know, it's, a, it's a great way to go to work. It beats, it beats, you know, working in a coal mine. It beats, you know, work, working <laughs> in, in a lot of other jobs. Like I, and I do, I appreciate it every day that it is like, it's, it's cruisy and it's fun and it's connected. It's hard, but it's, um, yeah, it's something that you can, like, I, I've worked many jobs, uh, over my years. I've worked in metal factories. I've done roofing. I've worked the uh, retail. I've done waiting, dishwashing, worked at McDonald's, um, the teaching is like the one job where I never have had that moment where you sit down before you have to leave for work and just going, oh, I don't want to go to work. And I've had that in so many other jobs. But teaching, I've always just been like, well, it's time to go. And I just trundle out the door. It's really um, it's really kind of cool. No, I understand. I've, I've been there where I've done jobs. I've been like, oh, man, I really just – is it the weekend yet? Oh, my God. Has this stay over yet? But you know, finally when I find something I like, which I am doing now, I'm like, oh, well. This is what it's all about. <laughs> this is. It took yeah. me this long to get to this point where I'm like, I want to go to work today. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I can't. Like, I try to tell my mates who work for the government and in public service jobs, and they're like, I just hate my job. And I'm like, Well, mix it up. Oh, I can't. You know, I'm 30. I'm too old to start again. I'm like, That's nothing. That is nothing. <laughs> nothing. I'm like, You just jump, man, because otherwise you're going to be 40, and then it might be too late. Then you're going to be 50, and then well, there's not much time left to work, and then it's 60, and well, you're about to retire. <laughs> Well, I mean, by the time my 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 generation gets there, we're probably not retiring until eighty. Right. But I was like, no, man, thirty is a fine time to start again at the bottom. How long does it take you to climb up? Not long. But how long does it take you to eventually get worn down and just have a life built around you that you bloody hate? Oh, that can happen far too quick, and you can apathetically allow it to roll on. And it's the sort of thing I just I don't, I, I couldn't abide. I would just. Yeah, I, I think it's I think having a life balance and having whatever sort of happiness you can find is so infinitely important, and it is more important than uh, money and sometimes other people. You have to sort of focus on yourself a little bit more and just work out well, you know, because if you're a mis miserable sack of meat, it's going to affect others around you and and not be good. Absolutely, no. To me, is as long as you're still breathing, you can make a change. 
and that's up to you in a lot of cases. I mean, it, life is too short, and it, it gets shorter as you get older, and you're like, you know, I, I really got to get moving. I got to make some changes. Um, there's some yeah. things I want to get done. So you always have time. Just don't keep putting it off thinking, I have later. I have later. There's plenty of time. I'm only 30. No, don't do that. You, you can do yeah, so yeah. much, man. <laughs> Just, just, you can't you can't like when when we leave uni we're like 21 22 you can't just say well i guess i'm on the tracks now there's no change in lines right. no <laughs> like that's like i loved it we were in the car the other day with my kids and we were talking about their their six and four and we, they were talking about what they wanted to be when they grew up and my son was like well you know i'm i'm gonna study engineering but i'm gonna be a singer on the side and my daughter said something like teaching or no maybe a nurse or a doctor, mm-hmm. but on the side, she wanted to be a dancer. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. And my wife sort of turned to me and said, you realize they think that adults have a job and a side hustle that's creative and passionate. And I was like, oh, they do. Oh, my God, that's so amazing. <laughs> like, they're already not buying into societal rubbish. They're like, no, 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 look, dad does it. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. Like, I mean, I don't want to set them up for burnout. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just like, that's beautiful that that's that they're not just when I grow up, I'm going to be an astronaut and they're totally pie in the sky. But they're also not just like, well, I guess when I grow up, I'm going to be a plumber because you've got to earn the dollars, y'all. Like they found this medium that they've watched me do. Um, I know four years ago, I went to Seattle as my first time going to the States for a con for Emerald City. And, you know, it costs a bit of money to fly over there from Australia. And I was keyed up for it and so excited. My wife. Um, really pushed for me to go. She was like, look, this will be good for you. It'll, it'll help you make a few connections and meet some publishers. Um, we, booked, we booked it all. And then I think a week later found out we were going to have a child. And I did the maths. And that child and that trip were going to be occupying a very similar space on the calendar. Ooh. And I freaked out and was like, oh, I'll cancel the trip. And she was just like, no, look, she's going to come before then. You'll be around. It'll be fine. And then you can go. Um, and the baby came late, and so the baby came, and then seven days later, I flew out. And I just felt like the worst human being in the world. And so I got all my stuff, and I'm sitting at Sydney Airport ready to fly out, just feeling like like the worst father, like just reprehensible. And I get on this long, long flight, and I land in LAX, and I'm still like just feeling like an idiot. And I feel like I've wasted the family money and all this sort of stuff. Like, what's a trip going to do? I'm nobody. And I landed in LAX and I'm waiting for my connect to, to Seattle and I, I log onto the Wi-Fi there and I get on Facebook. And my wife had written on my wall something to the tune of like, um, you know, we hope you have a good trip and, and, and we miss you and blah, blah, blah. And we love that every day that, that, that you live your life this way, you teach our children that they should chase their dreams. Now, you can imagine me a little sleep deprived, travel lagged in an airport trying to hold it together at LAX reach. <laughs> It was so beautiful. That's and I was really like, nice. oh, that is really nice. It's so amazing to have such a supportive wife and, and to sort of step back and go, well, maybe, maybe that is true. Like, I've long, I've long sort of said that, you know, the baby boomers were taught by the people in the Depression that you just get a job, man. You just, whatever pays, take that, that check and just feed your family. And that's it. And it doesn't matter if you hate yourself. And so you then had waves of these baby boomers that were, you know, uh, spiking in rates of, of, of suicide and depression that sat in jobs for 60 years and, and be, were postmen their whole life because you, you got that job and you stuck in it and then went postal. And it was no way to live. And, and you can see that the backlash is this whole 
apathetic Generation X slash millennials chasing their dream. And I like that. I like this idea that we're learning a lesson of you don't just don't, don't just grab a job and go, well, I will do whatever it takes just to make this money and I will hate I will hate work. Well, you don't have to hate work. I mean, you, you, you're going to here and there, but it doesn't need to be that mindset. And so to hopefully then impart onto my children, the next generation, that, you know, find balance. Just find a balance. And every now and then you might have to take a gig that you don't enjoy or you might have to step up your role. There's been times that I've been assistant principal um, and it's a, it's a higher workload, but it's more money and it's helped. And then I've stepped out of it when, you know, when the bills have eased and, and I, I creatively I've been striking fire more. I think it's important to, to weigh those things up. And I don't think it's being selfish because if, if you're not at 100%, you're not servicing the crew around you, whether that's family, friends or whatever. No, oh, absolutely. No, it's so true. Uh, like, like now I work in marketing and I'm really happy with it because uh, in my earlier jobs, it was like customer service and all these other things. I really just kind of did because I kind of fell into them. But now it's like, oh, look at this. I get to write articles business articles. I can even write some consumer facing articles working here. I can do a little bit of creative work, even though I'm not a graphic designer. I have, I know a little bit to be dangerous and there's all these things I could do. And there's all this variety. I'm like, Oh, so this is how work gets to be fun. I'm learning new things. I'm applying new skills. And then when I go back and do podcasting, I can apply some of those skills I learned at work and vice versa. So finally, the two things have met and actually worked together well and both help each other. And that's like the first time I've ever had a job where I was like, this is, re I really like doing, working in this field, you know, and it took so long to get there because I just kind of kept going with the flow. And like you said about the boomer generation, uh, I, I know some boomers uh, that uh, they, they always waited. They were going to wait until retirement to really have a good time, you know, really take that trip. And then there are health issues and things happen you don't plan for that's, that are tragic. And I've always thought, I'm taking all the trips I can. I'm taking my family. We're all going out. We're going out west. We're going, and we've done a lot of trips. And there's a lot of happy memories. And the kids have seen it. Um, at least one of them has. One of them's going to see it. I have two of them, and one's very young. Um, but they really had a good time. And their perception of the earth and our part in it and how much fun is out there besides sitting on the couch is totally different because they've been exposed to it. I wasn't when I was young, but they are being exposed because I'm like, wow, I wish I'd done this sooner, you know? Yeah. I mean, well, like I have like a comics budget that I have to help me make comics and I'm always like, oh, should I, should I invest in buying like some of these, you know, trade paperbacks of a story that I wrote so that I can sell them? Oh, you know, that's a big dent and, you know, I'll discuss it with my wife and she's always like, well, you're going to sell them. Like we'll make the money back and, and, and we'll be okay. We'll, we'll, we'll make do in, in that deficit period of spending, you know, $2,000 to then eventually get three back like we we have faith and so yeah You've got to sort of you can't just sit there and just wait and put off and wait and put off It's it's some of it requires a measured leap and so it's not just saying I wish I'd taken my kids traveling more We're gonna sell the house and just start driving like that's not <laughs> sensible But to be like well, we're gonna have these plans and have these trips and do these things. I think it's um, I think it's like a really good way to live and i find that the more i do that the more i'm in in a healthy headspace and the more i'm there the more creative i am and the more that i'm able to write or connect or, or do these things and i mean i mean it doesn't come through in my stories they're always so horribly dark um where often i, I like people will read my work and go like are you all right do you need to talk <laughs> 
And I'm like, well, no, I said it all. It's in the book. Like, because <laughs> I believe like writing is therapy. Like, I love that idea that you create through therapy. And it's not necessarily you going like, these were my exact feelings, but it's more like, this is my fear of what I might feel. Like, the very first comic I made was called Fatherhood. And it's about a father who tries to get a doll for his daughter and, and, and misses out. And when that happens, he sort of has this mental breakdown. And I've long said to people, you know, I gave him this mental breakdown so I wouldn't have one. And so I explored what he was going through. And the theme of the book is like, how far will you go for your children? And is there, is there a place where you've gone too far? And for me, as though after I had my first kid, that was something where I was like, well, yeah, what you love your kids and you love them infinitely, but what's too much? Like at what point does it, does it become the bad, like going, doing everything for them or going to bat for them? And so I was like, well, that's not what I'm doing, but I want to explore it in the story. Like in Beautiful Canvas, Lon has this, this, this fear of, of change and this fear of can she do it? Like she's, she's a hit woman. You, you, you don't have a solid moral center if you're a hit person. Like that's just not realistic, I don't think. I don't think there's anybody that can just be like, yeah, I'm going to go and kill some people and then I'm going to clock off and then I'm cool. Like she's broken inside. There's a whole backstory to her where, you know, she has issues. Can she overcome those issues to be a parent? That's her fear. I openly had those same problems and I wasn't even a hit woman. I worked with children. I should have been the, the key target to be a parent. But you still have those fears of like, well, you know, have I been a good enough person to this point to be a role model? And the, the, the lesson that you need to learn is, oh, you change. And it's okay to change. It's okay to have... I, I was allowed to be a young, drunk at uni student who acted like a, an idiot because that's not you for the rest of your life. You're allowed to be an insolent teenager and grow up. You're allowed to be an average teacher and become a great one. Um, like These are the things that you, you can't lock yourself into a definition. And I see people do it all the time. It always starts with a, oh, you know me. And then they roll out something that they're afraid to change. And I think that that's a, that's a, it's a really negative, negative place to be. And, oh, you know me, I don't like traveling. No, you're afraid to travel. Just don't have to do it. Don't just, don't, don't lock yourself in. And yeah, that's very much where Lon is at the start of the story. It's, it's where she is in that very first page. It's her thinking, I'm, I'm, not the, I'm not the person I'm about to become. Which when you think about it is a silly sort of thought because of course you're not that person. You haven't become them yet. And every little thing informs you along the way. And so it's a really cool journey we get to sort of take with Lon where you have to see if she's, if, if, if she's able to make the right choices and steps to, to get herself into a, a, a mindset where she's ready to accept that more change is coming, I guess is the best way to think about it. Wow. Teddy, it's heady stuff. Yeah, it's, yeah. People should more just focus on the blood and the monsters and the, you know, <laughs> the, the, the pyrokinesis. It's, it's all smoke and mirrors. <laughs> no, no, I love the heady stuff. That's what makes such a great book. That's what makes them... They have staying power, you know. They're not just like they're not like everything else. There's something a little more there. That's what I like about them. It's unmemorable. Like that's the stuff I like to read. I mean, again, that's why I loved Philip K. Dick because you'd get to the end of these stories and be like, "Whoa, that was more than just about a perky pat doll. That was about some wild societal ideas, and you know, half a half a century ahead of its time." And so, I, I won't say I'm always nailing it, but that's what I try to do with my stories because if you tell a story that matters, um the people who like it are more likely to love it. And I would rather have 5,000 readers who are like, this is my favorite book right now, than 50,000 readers who are like, 
yeah, I, I pick it up and if it's on my read pile, I get to it. And I know that's such a pat thing to say. If 50,000 people bought my book and <laughs> uh, I can't imagine the kick in my, uh, my wallet, that would be, it would be astounding. But again, as a, as a side hustle, I would rather those 5,000 people like hit me up and go, this book is something special. I mean, my last book uh, with Owen Jenny at Dark Horse uh, is called Negative Space. And it's about a writer who sits down to write a suicide note and he gets writer's block, which is, you know, the worst possible time for that to happen. And from there, we, we, we draw out this weird sort of sci-fi story of there's an, uh, there are emotion-eating monsters and there's a, a mega corporation mining human emotions and it's all very weird. But at its core, it's, you know, it's about suicide and depression and, and, and how you deal with these things. It's never about conquering them because I think that's such a dangerous trope to have in a story to just sort of say, oh, and then the person got an ice cream and he's not suicidal anymore. Isn't that easy? Like, I think that's such a terrible thing to tell people through story. Um, so it's not about that at all. And that book's been out for, I guess, two years now since the first issue dropped. And I had somebody DM me on um, Twitter the other day and go, oh, I've been chatting with a friend who's going through some really, 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 really dark times. And she was talking to me and mentioning, because they knew that this friend knew me, um, talking about how Negative Space was this really important book to them because it was so truthful and so understanding and so... Um, respectful of this idea and and problem of suicide and depression and so yeah so this other person then dm me and just said look your your writing matters ryan like your your stories that it doesn't have that impact on five million people but if it has that impact on one isn't that isn't that more important and beautiful and i was just blown away to think well, yeah that's exactly what i wanted that story to be it was never going to be massively commercial because it's about you know something that a lot of people find far too confronting but if it lands with the right people and it can, I won't say change their lives. I don't think I, uh, I don't think I could ever claim to be that transformative. But it can, if it can matter to them that much, I think that means more than so. It means it means more than money to me. I will honestly say that. Well, let me ask you about another one of your books. Um, and I'm so sorry I missed this. This was a Kickstarter, and it just wrapped up. Uh, Ink Island, and that one stars at least in name your kids. And you've got several messages in that Kickstarter book, Ink Island, about overcoming fear, relying on your siblings, perceived gender roles. I mean, you put a lot in there for a kid story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all um, it's all there, and we don't we don't beat anyone over the head with it. But it's there. That idea of, you know, I well, I mean, the the, the characters are my children. They very much act and are my children. Or as they were when the story was written about 18 months ago. Um, and there is that idea, like my son is like, and I'm sure by the time he's old enough to discover podcasts, he will never find this, but he's like a massive scaredy cat, right? He's just a huge scaredy cat of things. Um, whereas my daughter, who is younger than him, she's, she is a UFC fighter, man. She's a weapon. And so in the story, I was like, well, let's, let's, let's put that in there. Like, but, but the, you know, the, the, the kickoff for the story, the hook is that, you know, they're in a lighthouse that is there. They live in a lighthouse, the, the, the two children, um, that's there to keep the monsters in the dark away. And yet when a globe breaks and in the hustle to fix it, uh, my daughter gets kidnapped. And so it's very much this, oh, the girl gets kidnapped and the boy has to rescue her sort of like lazy trope. And throughout the story, we unpack that, well, it's not, it's not how the story needs to play out. And so it's, um, it's, very, it's subtle, but it's there. 
And so it's very much reliant on who my children are. But it also shows that, you know, in the story, my son has to overcome fear and he has to step up. And that's something that he, he does do. And there's this idea that my daughter is unflappable. And I, I start the story that the siblings love each other and get on well and are a team because I don't think it should be. I didn't want the story to start with the default of brother and sisters never get along and then they have to learn through hardship that, that, that you stick together. No, they're a team at the start and they're a team at the end and they're totally goofy in the way that they show their love. But it's there because of course it is. That's exactly the underlying tenet of siblings, I believe, and I hope, and it certainly is for my children. And so, again, yeah, I wrote it because it's a story that, you know, that matters and that, that has something to say, but it's also insanely goofy. Um, working with Craig Bruin, uh, who's a Victorian artist uh, here in Australia, he's got this real sort of Scotty Young vibe. And so when he draws a monster, there's like hair and warts and pert buttocks everywhere and um he makes it amazing like it's so much fun to write he brings so much um just joy to the page and then there's that that you just want it to be subtle you just want it to get to the end of the story and go oh yeah 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 there's there's some stuff that you can chew on there i think um i think you could i think you can do i mean i know you can do that in kids fiction i do it in class all the time i think um kids are smart enough to get that stuff and i don't know why we talk down to them um so often where we say, oh, don't, don't, don't give them the word. Don't tell them it's a, you know, an adverbial phrase at the start of a sentence. Give it a special name. It's a, it's a where, when hook at the start. I'm like, no, no, tell them what it is. Because either way, you're going to explain it. You might as well explain the term and not explain some fuddly dudley term. And then later they have to take the fuddly dudley term and apply it to the real words. Just give it to them. They're smart enough. They will. They will grasp it. Oh yes, um, they pick up a lot. I think it's yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. They surprise so, me sometimes. <laughs> well, yeah, to the point where you got to be careful. Yes, <laughs> very careful. <laughs> but you can give them the meta language of things and just go here. Here's here's what we call it. And they'll be like, oh, cool. And they will will. I mean, I I learned that especially with my kids, where you know, where they're, when they're three and four, you would just unpack terms and they would go, oh, okay, so that's what that word means. Cool. Let's use the word. Don't give it, don't give it some cute sounding code. Just tell them what it is and, and let them run. And in class, that's especially true. You don't, we have things to get their attention sometimes where we'll say, oh, you know, these are rainbow facts in um, maths. But at least that has an actual reason for being called that. We haven't just said, these are the rainforest facts. Why? What do they have to do with trees? You're like, oh, nothing. We just thought it would sound cool. Like that would be – you're confusing them in the long run. Yes. And so, yeah, I think in fiction it's fine to, to, to lay this this groundwork. Um, late last year I kickstarted another um, all-ages one-shot called Air, and um, E-I-R, Air, and, uh, with Alfie Gallagher on art. Actually, Triana Farrell on colors, the same as Beautiful Canvas. And it's about a girl who wakes up with a sentient sci-fi helmet in her bedroom and it wants to go on an adventure with her, and they do. Um, but the underlying thing is, well, what's she running from, which you don't pick up on when you first read the story. You're just like, sweet, adventure, of course she's going to fly into space. But she's not just flying to, she's flying away. And so when you get to the end, you go, oh, and there's a big emotional like bang at the end, and you go, oh oh, I need to reread this. And lots of readers have hit me up and been like, oh, I got to the end and realized, oh, I need to reread this because every scene then has this emotional weight that you didn't realize was there, but then is totally there when, when, when you unlock the code. And if you never unlock the code, it's still just this really cool intergalactic romp with Triona colors and it's wild and there's all sorts of, you know, aliens. Um, but once you get it and, you know, if you give it to a, a, a kid and it takes them 
three years to discover that, then I'm fine with that because they would have enjoyed the story regardless. But then they'll get something out of it later. That's kind of cool. It's like it's like leaving a little surprise. Well, you're a really busy guy, um, and I was just wondering. And this is the section of the show I call peace and relaxation. What do you do for peace and relaxation when you're not so busy teaching and writing? If you'd asked me like a few weeks ago, I would have just been like, um, nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> um, I I get up in the morning with the kids, and I you know I have breakfast with them, and you know help make lunches. But usually the wife's done it the night before. Um, pack bags and then either I'll, I'll take them to school with me or I'll shoot off um, and I'll go to school and I'll, I'm usually at school from 7.30 till about 5.30. Um, then I, go, I come home right on to dinner, um, have dinner, have a play with the kids um, and or clean the kitchen, uh, help with the, the showers and baths, read a story, put them to bed, hang out with the wife for half an hour because, you know, I'd, I'd love to not be divorced anytime soon. <laughs> uh, I hang out with her and, and she goes to bed early, which kind of works for me. And then I kick into the office and then usually I write from nine till uh, midnight or one and then go to bed and then I repeat like nearly every single day. And, and weekends, we just, we, we go out, we do stuff. Um, but recently, I've been doing this thing where um, I realized last year, 2016, I didn't read a single novel, which just horrified me. Um, cause I just don't have the time. And when I read, I, I guilt myself into being like, dude, you should be writing. You should be doing something. So, um, what I do now is when I go to bed on the way, I get, uh, like an armload of picture books and chapter books and I lay them out on our couch, like a little library display. And so then I set my alarm for about six, six Oh five. Cause my kids wake up about six 30. And so I get up and, uh, it's cold at the moment. So, you know, slippers on robe on. Um, grab a coffee and I go sit in our window where the sun is sort of just starting to come in on the couch and I read a novel and I have my coffee and then the kids sort of slowly wake up and when they do they come out and they see me and they see these books and they come up for a cuddle and they chill out and then I'll they'll ask me to read something to them and I'll say look when I finished my chapter because I've also realized in not reading, they've not seen me read for pleasure, like anywhere near enough as far as I'm concerned. And so I'll finish up my chapter and they'll either sit there and sort of read on their own or they'll just cuddle up or, or whatever. Um, and then I'll, I'll put my book aside and I'll read a book with the one or two of them that's already up and then we'll have breakfast and then we'll start the day. And I can like honestly say those half an hour starts to the day are the best parts of the day. They're so good because I'm just not, I'm not thinking about the lunches I'm about to make. I'm not thinking about the day ahead of teaching. I'm not thinking about anything except just, just being there with the kids um, and letting the wife sleep in. Cause then we're in the living room. We're not making any noise. And so she can sort of chill out and, and, and doesn't have us clattering in the kitchen yet. It's, um, it's really relaxed. I think it's done a lot just to, I don't know, just to sort of level me out and, um, and, and chill me out. Oh, it's, yeah. uh, it's something I'm hoping I can keep going. That's brilliant. No, that really is because I'll get up early before everybody else and I'll get the coffee going. And if there's – this is the thing I do to kind of keep the peace, so to speak. But do my part, I should say, not keep the peace. 
<laughs> but like <laughs> it could it could create a war if I don't do it. But like if the dishes are <laughs> done on the dishwasher, I'll unload the dishwasher because I'm like, well, I'm up. Yeah. I'm making the coffee. I might as well do the you know unload it so that way she yeah. doesn't have to do it because she's got the kids to get up in the morning. And then some. Yeah. My oldest son will wake up first usually. And he'll ask me for something and I'll get it for him. So he'll he'll be busy playing with his tablet, you know, whatever, or reading. And I'll either read or work on the podcast. And I'll do all that before everybody gets up. Before yeah. I even bother working out, I'll do like you know, an hour of that just to kind of get myself awake. And it's that really yeah. quiet, peaceful time in the morning where there's no noise. Yeah. <laughs> My wife it's can really see. nice. It is. I, li- I live at the end of a, a cul-de-sac. And so it's just quiet out there and it's getting a bit misty in the mornings and – yeah, there's something about that time of day. It's um, it's magic. It's different to the silence at the end of the day. I don't mm-hmm. know. It's- yeah, yeah, it's true. Everything's still asleep, and you, you're a little bit ahead, but you can enjoy that peace. Yeah, yeah I really like that too. Because I think finding that time to carve out for yourself in some respect, it is important. I mean, exercise is the other one, um, but I find I, I exercise now um, when I watch TV. Mm-hmm. And that way it allows me the time to do both because I, I don't want to give myself time to exercise because it feels um, self-involved. And I don't want to give myself time to watch TV because it feels lazy. But if I do both, well, it's not lazy and I'm filling my head with you know, right. stories. I think as a writer, it's important to, to invite different stories. And so it's this lovely balance, but it's not as mindful. Right, I guess because you still and and I and I don't watch like the Kardashians or something where I'm like switching my brain off. <laughs> right. I'm watching stuff like Fargo and Hannibal and things that I want to concentrate on. Um, so it's still like a, a mental connection sort of thing. So yeah, no, the the mindfulness just comes in that that morning of just just chilling out. It's it's been the best idea ever. And my kids are bringing out new like old books that they haven't read in ages, and and, and I'm getting stuck into things. And I, and I'm like. Halfway through my reading my second novel for the year, which I've set myself the goal of reading four novels mm. this year, which is like the lowest bar to hurdle. But for me, it's like huge compared to last year. Um, and yeah, I'm like, I'm, I'm solidly just ticking away at it. Because otherwise I think, well, if I read five minutes a day, it's going to take me forever to read a novel. But now I'm okay with that. I'm like, look, if I read one a season, that's fine. And, and I'll, I'll be... Um, I have something at the end of the year, you know. Yeah, well, as long as you stay with it and you can do a little bit each day. Because like, if like a couple months passed from the last time you picked it up, yeah, like, i got to start over now. <laughs> I forget where I left. I'm yeah, like, pretty much. Like that's the death of it, yeah. Like, I started reading a book when my, my second son was born while I was in the hospital because he was really quiet. He was a, he was the opposite uh-huh. of his brother who was very colicky when he was born. This kid, this, he all right? I'm like – yeah, that's what a baby's supposed to do. They're supposed to sleep. This is this is normal, huh? Yeah. This is normal. Yeah. So, but I never got back to it. I'm like, I got to start over because <laughs> I started yeah, reading I, it. And I did, you know, got tied up with other yeah, things. Yeah, I'm lost. Yeah, if that uh, <laughs> invariably those books, I just somehow never go back to it because then I'm like, well, I don't want to have to read those 200 pages again. And, oh, but I know I have to. And then that's um that's Stephen King's Doctor Sleep, where I'm like, man, I got like a third of the way through that book, and that's a big third. Oh, but I want to finish it, but I don't want to have to grab it now and be like, wait, what happened? So I'm in this weird sort of detente standoff where I'm like, all right, I don't know. So I'm just reading around and reading other things. Although actually at the moment I'm reading my two brothers, um, my two older brothers are are novelists and they they co-wrote a book, um, Plato Wingard and the Valley of the Immortals. Ah. And I'm reading that. And so like I got my copy last year in November and I was like, I can't wait to read this and just didn't get around to it. So I'm like, all right, it's the second book in 2017 and I'm, that 200 pages into it. So it's kind of cool that I'm getting to read something that my brothers wrote. It's really awesome. 
And normally I ask my guests, the next question is, what is your island book if you're stuck on an island? But, you know, you're, you're having a tough time trying to get those books read. Um, but do you have one right now that you would say, if I was stuck on an island, that's the book I want with me? Oh, man. I mean, because then it's like, do you pick something you've read and you know it's good? Or is, do you pick that dream book where you're like, oh, you know, always wanted to get to this? Um, or, I don't know, my favorite novel is The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. That book was good. That book by Michael Shabon. That book was phenomenal. And I've only read it once. It would be that or it would be Why the Last Man. Okay. By mm-hmm. Pierre Guerra and Brian K. Vaughan. It's, it's one of those two, I would say. And uh, your beverage of choice. Now, maybe it's coffee because you like your coffee in the morning, but what is your beverage of choice when you're relaxing? Yeah, it probably is a coffee at this stage. Um, I, have, I have a mate um, in, in Adelaide, Ben Rosenthal, who uh, started up his own um, coffee uh, roastery, black market um, coffee. And so I, I get stuff from him and, and have a little uh, French press at home and, um, and grind it up. And it's just it's, it's a nice little uh, a nice little routine and a beautiful drop. So, yeah, like look, after I had kids, I basically stopped drinking alcohol. I just found you have to stay alert. I, I, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah. You don't want to be dull and and. And I could never, I, I could not do a hangover with the kids around. It's I, hard. It would, yeah. 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 It's totally, and my wife works weekend mornings. Mm. So I've got the kids solo. There's no way I'm sitting around feeling, feeling headachy. So I, I, I probably, uh, I, I wouldn't choose. Although I did discover when I was in Seattle, coffee stout. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Delicious. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if they have that in Australia, but I hadn't stumbled across it. And so I had some with Owen Gianni um, and uh, Curtis Weeb. And we went out for some coffee stouts, and they were phenomenal. So you know that would be back up, just just uh, getting room temperature in the corner. But otherwise, um, coffee, which I never drank. I didn't drink coffee until my thirty. Me too. Yeah, I did yeah, the same thing. I didn't need it. I had energy. Mm-hmm. I didn't have kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I started late too, and uh, yeah. I enjoy my coffee now. And I'll tell you, nothing gets you more brownie points than showing up bedside with a cup of coffee. That goes yeah, a long yeah. way. <laughs> we we enjoy a little bit of wine in the evening. Um, and like you said, you know, we're both like, well, we got it. One of us has to be sober because if the kid wakes up crying, I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> so exactly, you, you got to right? moderate now with the kids and everything. And, and as you get older, it gets a little rougher if you drink too much. It's, you know, you just don't quite oh, yeah, bounce not, out of it's bed. It's not a one morning hangover. Mm-mm. It's like Mm-mm. a two day affair. <laughs> it's, I don't know what my body's doing, but it's, <laughs> I said to someone, I was like, I don't like it. My body's revolting. And they were like, wait, which one do you mean? And I'm like, both. I don't know. <laughs> Whereas you're right, though, turning up bedside was kind of like when I met my wife. Like she's she's very good looking, right? And and I'm like a sweaty ham goblin, and so <laughs> I, I was, she's like a nine, and I'm like a, a five point eight. And so um, I had to work to like win her over, as far as I'm concerned. I had to like keep the hustle going, and so I like cooked dinner every single night for like our entire courtship. Wow. And then I felt really bad. We got married, and it was like. My, I started working more. I took on a bigger role at school, and so I'm just not home in time for dinner. And we had our first child um, right after we got married, and so she was home. And so we've like flipped, and I barely cook a meal, and so I feel horrible. I feel like I tricked her. I felt like uh, <laughs> you know, I cooked dinner and I was fit, and then we got married, and I was like, trick, not going to do any of that anymore. <laughs> so what I do now is I do a lot of breakfast in bed. And so I will like I will do eggs or um, like fruit salads or even just cereal, whatever, and like a like a cup of tea or something. And yeah, you're right. It's uh, 
as far as I'm concerned, it's the least I can do. She's uh, she's she's a gorgeous, smart woman, and I'm you know a comic writing trog. I have to I have to bring something <laughs> to the table as far as I'm concerned. I completely understand, sympathize. Uh, you know, she keeps me on a leash. <laughs> Because I'm, I'm hideous, and uh, she's gorgeous, and uh, you know I, I do my part. Because yeah, I I never really cooked, and when I did cook, it's like eh, let me do the cooking. And she's a great cook, <laughs> so <laughs> so um, so I take care of like little things that I can do and not mess up, like empty the dishwasher, vacuum the house, help fold laundry. Because yeah. I you know I'll be doing multitasking. Like I'm like look, I'm listening to a podcast. I'll just fold the laundry while I'm standing here. You know, it's, I'll multi. Yeah. That's how I usually listen to a lot of podcasts when I'm working out. Yeah, yeah, doing the housework. Yeah, it's just it's first it gets best. me through it because <laughs> i have something yeah. to distract me and i don't mind cutting the lawn i listen to i queue up a podcast and then okay i'm fine with it i have something i can enjoy listening to and i get through this chore <laughs> my wife knows that like there's obviously a, a good podcast that's turned up in the feed because i'll be like oh i'll go i'll go mow the lawn i'll go do this and she's like do you want to listen to something don't you I'm like yeah why i'm gonna do something while i do it i promise i'm gonna go fix some stuff in the garage and i'll just like uh, and I'll get stuff done, but yeah, I'm like listening to something at the same time. It's the only way, yeah, to sort of to to get through it. Well, I hear you, and 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 for me too, like like you watching TV, I feel guilty if I'm just sitting there listening to something and not doing something, like getting yeah. some some housework done, something that's on the list, the honeydew list that I have to do. Yeah, it doesn't hurt, and and that's it. Like I'm like the I'm I'm like the hired help. I'm not the brains around here, so. <laughs> My wife will be like, we're going to landscape and she'll be drawing up plans and she's like, we've got these native plants coming in and we're going to do this and that. And every now and then I'm like, are you sure that you want to? And she's like, yeah, I'm sure. And she is. And she's right. I'm like, damn it. But when we get like a, like a, like a ton of tan bark turns up, I'm like, honey, I'm going to grab my headphones. I'm going to move that ton of tan bark into our backyard. And she doesn't want to do that. So she's like, go for it. So I can do like the dumb grunt work. And yeah. I guess it keeps me around. <laughs> yeah, that's like that's like me. I was like, we gotta mulch the lawn. I said, I don't want to pay for someone to come out and mulch the lawn. Yeah, it's great, mm. but uh, you know, take care of all the, the mulch on the bushes. But I really hate the part with that cash. And you know, I buy enough comics. I really can't. I mean, the least <laughs> I can do is lift the bags, cut them open, and dump them and help her. You know, yeah. I mean, that's that's yeah, yeah. that's paying for my habit by me helping. Out. Yeah, yeah. I went through the same way. I'm like, all right, good afternoon's work. The other day, I did like. We have a green waste thing nearby where you can just take all your tree branches and clippings. And my wife is like, we're going to cut this tree down. So I'm going to prune it down and then you're going to dig it out and you're going to take it away. And I'm like, I can do that because an afternoon of doing that saves us getting someone to come in with a trailer or do something. I'm going to cut it up, put it in the back of the car. I'm going to make four trips and then I'm not going to feel too bad when I pay a colorist or a letterer for something. I feel like I've sort of balanced that out. So, yeah balance all about balance. that's how we uh, afford the family trips we don't spend money on yeah. things like that if it's if it's uh, grunt work i just do it mm. if it doesn't take a special yeah. skill i'll just go ahead and do it and save the money and then i'll all have a nice trip later on you know <laughs> yeah that's it that's the if it doesn't take special skill those few jobs that do and i'm like oh how do i figure out how to just do it bad enough to get it done <laughs> well ryan this has been a great conversation i really enjoyed it and before we wrap up, you want to tell us how people can reach you, uh, where they can find you on Tumblr, with the, where you post the art, and your website? Yeah, absolutely. So if people uh, – Twitter is my, my social media hub. I love it. Um, they can find me at Ryan K. Lindsay um, all together. And then at a lot of platforms, it's also Ryan K. Lindsay. So Facebook, you know, slash Ryan K. Lindsay, Instagram, slash that. Um, RyanKLindsay.tumblr.com. But we also have a beautiful Canvas-specific uh, Tumblr so that you don't have to wade through – 
the other Ryan stuff, you can just get the book stuff, which is beautifulcanvas.tumblr.com. Um, and I also have a weekly newsletter that I put out uh, that's just about what I'm working on and about writing process and just sort of a very much in the way we talked about back matter. It's like the back matter of my life, I guess. And that, they can subscribe there at tinyletter.com slash Ryan K. Lindsay. Um, it's, it's been going about two years now and just continues to, I love it. It continues to gain new followers and, and sort of new fans who we were, we were leaking stuff about beautiful canvas probably for the last nine months. Um, I was on a podcast, uh, uh, over at horror, um, talks, the, the blood splatter podcast. Um, with James Ferguson and he said like, look, I've been reading this newsletter and I felt like I was on the journey for beautiful canvas. Um, and I was like, well, that's exactly what I want through that newsletter. Um, cause I won't leak it on like social media a lot cause I just feel it becomes a bit of white noise, but for people who sign up for the newsletter, um, I think it can be really cool. So yeah, there's that as well. So, uh, hopefully if people have enjoyed listening, or want to find out more about beautiful canvas. They're more than welcome to hit me up. Cool. I do. Okay. I'll sign up. Nice. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to take care of that. Absolutely. Well, excellent. Great. Hey, thanks so much. This has been a great conversation and uh, I hope you'll come back on a future podcast and we just scratched the surface. I got a lot here <laughs> sitting in front of me, questions, notes, but we covered a lot, but I like to have it back sometime. Yeah, man. Absolutely. Uh, anytime. I'd, I'd love to be on. It was a really, it was a really lovely chat. Thank you so much. Oh, that was a great conversation with Ryan K. Lindsay, and you should really check out his upcoming book, Being Published Through Black Mask Studios, Beautiful Canvas. Um, as he said, if you go on his website, it's called Without Fear. You can find an Ashcan version of the first issue, so you get uh, several pages, so you can check out that beautiful art we talked about, and also get a feel for the story. And it's just scratching the surface. Like I said, it gets pretty weird. Also on his website is an Ashcan of Chum. That is the noir surface story that he wrote, and it's also with the same artist, Sam Cavella, who was working on Beautiful Canvas uh, along with Ryan. And you get a chance to see how his art has evolved since Chum. And just from the sample pages, it looks like a great book, another one well worth putting on your list to read. Yes, my ever-growing reading list is getting ridiculous now, but everyone I'm talking to, they do really great stuff, and that's why I have them on the show. And if you like what you hear and want to give me a shout out, you can reach me through social media at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod on both Facebook and Twitter. You can also email me through my website, creatortalks.com. That's creatortalks.com. There I post each of the episodes. You can also download them on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Be sure and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And best of all, they're all free, so won't cost you anything, but you get some great entertainment. You get, in a sense, that audio back matter about the creators and their work. And hey, we're going to start digressing all over the place and having a lot more fun with the show during our conversation. So it's fun for me, it's fun for the creator, and it's fun for you. Okay, that's it. I'm out of here. It's early in the morning doing this recording, so I'm going back to my beverage of choice, a cup of coffee. For Creator Talks, I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.